Women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. You gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants to hear your Hello and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about change and the women who make it happen on and off the Princeton campus. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna from 1983, and my guest today is Juliette Eilprin. Juliette is a senior national affairs correspondent for the Washington Post. She joined the paper in 1998 as the House of Representatives reporter and began covering the environment in 2004. She's written two books. The first is called Fight Club Politics, How Partisanship is Poisoning the House of Representatives, and the second is Demonfish, Travels Through the Hidden World of Sharks. In researching that book, she literally donned a scuba outfit and swam with sharks. So, Juliet, thank you very much for being with us today. Your first book, Fight Club yeah. Politics, sounds like by its title that it could have been written today. But I'm really uh, interested that it was written almost 13 years ago, I think, in 2006, right? Yeah, and in fact, I actually wrote the entirety of the book's first draft on the Princeton campus when I was when I was teaching there, it gave me the time to really distill all my thoughts about what I had seen over the past decade, which was which was great. But yes, exactly. I, we we often joke that you could republish it with just the subtitle "I Told You So" and it would <laughs> hold up just as well as when it first came out. Well, I think some of us could stand some refreshing. What was going on back in the '90s? That uh, this was the early stages of your career, essentially. Exactly. So I really started covering. Washington intensively in the mid-90s, which was right at the time when Republicans had won control of the House and Senate after the 1994 elections. Right. And so really what I had seen was a real revolution, the Republican revolution is what they called it in some ways, uh, on Capitol Hill because Democrats had controlled the House for 40 years. And, and it was this moment where you had folks swept to power under the leadership of Newt Gingrich, yeah. who the Republican from Georgia. And so what I was really looking at is how the status quo was shaken up by a group of folks who really thought this go-along, get-along policy that had pervaded Capitol Hill, where folks had cut deals, there was more bipartisanship, but at the same time, Republicans in many ways were a junior partner, certainly in the mm. House, was no longer the way they should should operate. And what I was looking at is both kind of what were the cultural, political, and policy changes that happened and how they were driven both by some really important historic figures, but also by the skewing of congressional districts, mm -hmm. you know, what folks call uh, gerrymandering, yeah. where you where you really had districts that tilted so much to the left or, or, or the right that essentially it brought people who were from the outer edges of the ideological spectrum and put them in positions of authority on Capitol Hill. Yeah, so, so gerrymandering is obviously going to be as old as democracy itself, or as electoral politics probably, but right. was this the kind of beginning of the hyper-politicization or partisanship of the gerrymandering? It, it was, and really what was interesting is when I was writing it, this had absolutely happened in the House, but for example, hadn't been as prevalent in the upper chamber. And what we have really seen over the last decade and a half is just obviously an acceleration of this trend where even when you are running statewide, the primaries have such a huge importance that they really do end up affecting what kind of men and women ultimately make it to Washington. And of course, what we have seen under the current president is he has chosen to get involved in 
party primaries in a way you haven't seen before, and that has yeah. also had an influence, and it's had an influence on not just Senate and House races, but even gubernatorial races. Yeah. But back back when you wrote the book in the first place, did you ever imagine it would continue along the same trajectory and, and, and get worse? I mean, was there a worse from, from where we were standing? There, there I did I did think that this was the beginning of something that, that was actually going to get worse, which is one of the reasons why I wrote it. I thought it was an interesting moment to take stock of, of where we were headed. And yeah. so uh, while while there was I had some thought that there was there would be a way to reverse it, uh, reverse this trend somewhat. Certainly that that just has not materialized. Yeah. Well, you know, at the same time, um, this extreme partisanship or polarization, political yeah. polarization is going on not just in the United States. Right. It's going on all over the world. Right. Certainly in, in European countries. Um, so it makes me wonder, too, if there are bigger, even bigger forces at play that you, you might put your finger on. for. Sure. I mean, I think and, and I would say that some of these I had some sense of and some I did not at the time that I was writing that book. So, for example, clearly, I think we've seen that there have been economic forces mm-hmm. that have certainly fueled some of this polarization as, as we have seen a widening of, of the gap between those who are doing well and those who are not. And that certainly ha- partly explains what we're seeing globally. Uh, what I had not fully anticipated would be kind of two developments. One is the issue of the refugee crisis that we have, again, seen globally. Uh, and obviously here we see it in terms of what's happening with folks from Central America coming to the U.S. That kind of migration of people that has made in many ways countries turn inward and and have anxiety about those who are coming in is is not something that I really addressed or had been thinking about in the book. And one of the interesting things which I touched on a bit but really hadn't fully grasped was the way media changes, including the rise of social media uh-huh. and and the way that people selectively got their news sources would accelerate this. And again, we have seen this certainly in the United States, but across the world, that that has changed the way people get information Mm -hmm. and in doing so shapes their views. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in this great divide or in this, I don't know, this polarizing process, a couple of issues almost become litmus tests, right? Or they certainly split across the chasm. Uh, healthcare seems to be one of them, but the environment really is also one of them. And I'm just curious, I've been looking at this a lot and asking a lot of people about it. If in your mind that there's something intrinsic to environmental issues that makes it a partisan issue, or if this is just part of that historical uh, sorting that, uh, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate, um, um, you know, byproduct of that. I really think that it's it's not inevitable. And in fact, again, at the start of my career, there really was a great deal of of bipartisanship on many of these issues, including climate change, for example. Uh, One of the interesting things is, for example, I got to know Senator John McCain, the late Republican senator from Arizona, in the course of covering Capitol Hill, but then had done reporting on, for example, how he had tackled the issue of climate change, an issue he ultimately really jettisoned in towards the end of his career. But what was was interesting is is that, you know, when I was covering the 2008 presidential campaign and I was covering with John McCain and Sarah Palin as opposed to uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden, and we we would go back and forth on the Straight Talk Express and and you know on the airplanes talking about some of these issues, and his position was almost indistinguishable from that of Barack Obama's, mm. and clearly that's not a scenario that we could imagine today. And so I think that 
uh, and when you talk to voters, a lot of these issues, with the exception of climate change, don't break down as strongly along party lines, mm-hmm. that, that there are many values on in certain public lands and other yeah. issues where, in fact, there is broad support. So, But but I do think, as you you know use that phrase, litmus test, mm-hmm. that, there, that there are a number of reasons, whether partially it's because of politics, partially it's because of the money that's funding mm-hmm. some of, of these candidates, you have seen a really stark split on, mm-hmm. for example, the issue of climate yeah. change. Um, and just asking you to be a little self-reflective of your own industry. Do you think that the media has any role to play in this? I mean, I've heard lots of criticisms from right, left, and center Mm -hmm. that either the the journalists chose to define climate change, uh, you know, too even-handedly and always presented it as a two-sided issue when scientists didn't think it was, or maybe they were too sensationalist, or maybe they were too um, liberally biased or something like that. So there's a million ways that the, the media has been criticized. I'm curious if you own any of it right. or how you feel. Well, I would say that what's interesting and, you know, I, I switched over to covering the environment full time in 2004, although I did have these periods where I both covered a presidential campaign and covered the White House for Obama's second term. And I would say that it was an interesting time to switch over because, there's no question that there had been this kind of he said, she said approach to the issue of climate change. And but but when I really entered it and started looking at the science that that was around the time when a number of outlets, whether it's The Washington Post, The New York Times or others, had come to the conclusion that there was enough of a scientific consensus that human activities were have been driving climate change in recent decades that we kind of changed our terminology on that. And what's interesting is for years afterwards, I did keep hearing from folks that they felt like there was this back and forth that was not grounded in the science. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that certainly was to some extent an issue before I entered this arena, though I do think that, you know, one of the interesting things is the science has just become clearer and clearer. And to some extent, journalists try to, to catch up with that. I do think that sometimes there's sensationalism involved. There's certainly an issue about, you know, when kind of an extreme weather event comes there. There's now, again, stronger evidence of connections between climate change and extreme weather. But I do think that there there are times when people um, jump on that bandwagon. And I just think broadly... There certainly is an issue that I would say, you know, if I when I have to critique the industry, which is that certainly there were not the same level of resources or attention devoted to a number of these issues mm-hmm. years ago. And now I really think that in many ways the media has stepped up and is really grappling with this issue. But the fact that there was this lag could also contribute to a lack of understanding of, of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also um, concerned, or I mm-hmm. think sometimes uh, that there may be a problem that climate change now is such a cause celeb that it is um, perhaps squeezing out some other environmental issues. And I'm curious if you think that might be true, because so many of these are, you know, wildly interconnected right. and feed on each other. Um, you know, um, uh, species dying out, right. water issues, that sort of thing. But yeah, well, I think that's a that's a challenge that that we have to grapple with because everyone has limited resources. And so and you're right. Part of the issue is when you make something a priority, other 
stories don't get covered. And that that is simply a fact. And, you know, these are, are tough choices. And you're right that I think that given the fact that a number of, of outlets are, are really focusing on climate change, it does mean there is less, whether it's virtual ink or actual ink being mm-hmm. spilled yeah. uh, and, and research being done into other in other matters. And I guess, you know, what I would say is that you really do have to make that try to strike the best balance you can. I know that's certainly what we try to do, but you do have to recognize that kind of life is full of choices and, yeah. and, and some things do don't get don't get the coverage that they might deserve. And I particularly think this is a challenge when you talk about local issues, particularly with the contraction of the local media, that there might not be your local paper covering what's happening you know, in your community, which could have huge impacts when you talk about whether it's air or water pollution or other issues. So I want to come back to that in just a second, because that was actually one of my questions. But maybe you could frame for us some of the other key issues in the environment that maybe aren't getting the press that they they would if you if you could cover right. everything you wanted to. What are the big issues? Well, one thing I would say, and I and of course, I, I have my shark bias, but I would say <laughs> that that I remain concerned that we just do not pay enough attention to ocean issues, that, that, yeah. that really it's one of the hardest things to cover. And sometimes there's really exceptional coverage. And certainly, for example, there has been uh, a lot of attention to marine debris, for example, and mm-hmm. kind of plastic in the ocean. That's the kind of thing that really grabs viewers because you can show, you know, the Pacific garbage patch and, and various things. But with the exception of that, uh, for for a number of reasons, including the fact that a lot of it happens below the surface, I just think that very few outlets in the U.S. do an adequate job covering mm-hmm. it. And and I would say now that I have a different mandate, mm-hmm. I don't get to write those stories yeah. like I did before. So that that's kind of top of the list. But I think there I think there are other things. There are, too. and of course, I mean, it makes me <laughs> makes me think that sharks are probably the least photogenic. Well, they're photogenic, but not in a not in a heartwarming <laughs> way. They're the least cuddly. <laughs> animal to try to protect. But there's much more than sharks at stake, obviously. Okay. Um, I did want to talk to you very uh, straight on about the changing industry because um, I think it's affecting, as you've already alluded to, how we hear, how, 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 how the coverage of these key stories are being affected in a lot of different ways. So maybe you could just spell that out some more. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of incredible when you think that uh, I've been out in the world since graduating from Princeton <laughs> for, you know, um, for a few decades, and that really my time over the past quarter century in the, in the newspaper business has been a time of incredible upheaval and change. Mm-hmm. And I entered a workforce where it wasn't the greatest economy, but things were at least, you know, relatively stable, particularly for, you know, newspapers, the world I inhabit. And we saw a cratering of this industry after advertising revenue collapsed. Mm. And so, you know, it's, uh, I, again, consider myself extremely lucky that I have been able to both uh, work at, a, you know, initially a family-owned newspaper and now <laughs> uh, a, a newspaper owned by a single individual because we have gotten, you know, the resources that we need. But I think, broadly speaking, there there are certain industries, and the media is one of them, where when the entire economics of your industry changes, there's a question of how you're going to adapt. And, mm. and while I remain very encouraged by both, you know, kind of some of the innovation we've seen and the fact that there is such an incredible 
desire for news and it's being disseminated so broadly. Like one of the things I always like to say is when I started at the Washington Post and I actually went to Iowa with Newt Gingrich, he was initially looking at uh, at running for president back in the day when, you know, when he was speaker. And I had to tell people I interviewed there that I would cut out my newspaper article and mail it to them <laughs> so that they could read it. And when I think of that compared to the fact that people can see a story within seconds of it posting, I mean, so there, there are these kind of incredible things that have happened to journalism. But I do think that there's been, you know, a real, a real shakeup, which while I've been able to nav- navigate it at a place that's relatively stable, I do have deep concern for communities that don't have yeah. the same institutions that can weather Yeah, I mean, there's been basically a, a decimation of, of local newspapers, and right. certainly a beats-like environment, I think, are, are, are harder hit than, than, than others. Yeah. But, but there's other stuff happening, too, that I'm really kind of intrigued by, and I don't mm-hmm. know if you know much about this. Or, sure. Um, I was reading a study from the Knight Center uh, on or for environmental journalism, talking about how journalism classes, because the industry yeah. is, you know, known to be rocky yes. from an employment point of view, that journalism classes as a whole are kind of thinning out, but environmental journalism classes are, 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 are plump, are flush. Right. And in part, that's because non-journalists are taking them. They're being taken by uh, people in environmental studies and, and, and people who, who might have a, a stronger advocacy right. uh, orientation. And I'm wondering, I mean, this is on the one hand, of course, um, encouraging, and on the other hand, there's a downside to it. So uh, how do you weigh that? Right. I mean, I think that, of course, it's great that people are interested in this. And I do think, again, people are interested in environmental journalism in terms of, again, consuming the news, in some cases, reporting themselves, and, and, and that's terrific. I all, I do always have some hesitation that in environmental journalism, there are some folks who don't delineate the line between advocacy and straight reporting the way that I have for my whole career. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just the way I'm built and the way I think, and it's 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 how I've pursued my career. But certainly there are plenty of folks out there who are producing journalism that have more of an advocacy bent. Mm-hmm. And obviously I, I understand why people do that, and certainly there are ways to indicate the perspective that you're coming from. But as as someone who cares deeply about having impartial information shared with the public there's always a little bit of a concern that if you have so much advocacy going on and if that's if that line gets blurred mm. people will not see you as an independent voice yeah. and that's certainly something i want to work to protect yeah yeah but that that line that that line is really hard to protect i mean increasingly certainly around the issue of climate change it seems to me that when there are people out there denying the science, you know, when does supporting the truth become advocacy or when does it become perceived as advocacy? Isn't it easy for that to Well, while I think that people do have concerns about that, it is worth noting, for example, that, you know, while there are certain exemptions, even several of the most senior individuals in, for example, this current administration say that human activity is helping drive climate change, including, for example, the president's nominee to head the Interior Department, who just had his confirmation hearing before the Senate. And so while while you're right that some people might see those things as, you know, taking, taking a side, taking a stand, I think that 
I feel very comfortable that we state facts the way we, we do. And then also it's important to write with authority. That's part of what we can offer readers, the fact that not all of them are going to have time to read the scientific literature, but that is part of what we mm. consider our job. And I felt that same way when I wrote, you know, when I wrote about, for example, I have done a, a bit of, you know, some healthcare coverage and I don't think people t- took such issue if I would be writing about what would be the impact of, you know, certain Medicaid requirements or why the healthcare.gov initiative uh, did not did not work. You know, I was getting into, you know, pretty technical issues, but people people didn't see those as, as polarized, but they were just as much talking about, you know, facts and data. And so mm. that's, you yeah. know, that's part of what you got to do as a reporter. Yeah. A couple of years, I think it was a couple of years ago, mm. you wrote an article that was, or co-wrote an article that was headlined, um, the Trump administration at war with itself over climate change. I hate yeah. to throw something back at you that's so okay. a couple of years old. Yeah. Could you give us an update? Because a second ago, you mentioned that there, there are people inside. Right. You. Well, actually, it's very interesting, particularly um, in recent weeks, I've been writing about, for example, there's an initiative championed by the uh, National Security Council, where they're talking about launching uh, some sort of task force, whether it's internal or external, to to essentially scrutinize the federal, the, both the scientific consensus and the federal scientific consensus that human activity is driving climate change and that it represents a threat to national security and just the United States more broadly. Mm-hmm. And that's an example of, I think, of, of really showing what this is, what this is like, that there remains basically this internal debate, which has not been that elevated because of the fact that, frankly, climate change is not a top policy priority for mm-hmm. this administration. And one of the most significant decisions they had to make having to do with an international climate accord happened in the first year of the president's term. But I think what's interesting is, is certainly when these things happen, and that's something I'm continuing to cover that it does expose these schisms within even an administration like like this one. And I, I think that that's kind of fascinating to see how people who might share the same policy goals might have a very different view of what the facts are. Yeah, no, I think it is fascinating, too. And, and so I wanted to come around to your very specific beat now, because essentially you cover um, the federal agencies that that monitor, regulate, make rules about issues involving the environment, right? Exactly. So I'm focused on that and kind of the deregulatory agenda mm-hmm. of those agencies. Yeah. So in that kind of gritty yeah. uh, field, w- what are the key linchpin stories that you're covering? I mean, these are obviously important, right. not just because of the the, the, the minutiae of politics, sure. but because they, they, they are going to feed back in a big way into our lives. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, climate change is at the top of the list. So I look at kind of what's happening to federal si- climate science and, you know, how are these things being considered and shaping policy? I'm looking at what's happening with public lands because there's so many rules that, for example, the Interior Department is changing that have huge imp- implications across the country. Like drilling and things R- like that? Right. Dr- drilling on public lands, changing, say, the protected status of different areas to allow for whether it's drilling, mining, um, some other, you know, forms of development. I'm looking at kind of what's the real world impact on people's lives or on, you know, species that, you know, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, I do like writing from time to time about endangered species and and kind of when you put some of these rules, uh, rule changes in motion, you know, how do they affect the mm-hmm. air we breathe, the water we drink, things like that. And, you know, one of the things um, which I think you kind of alluded to, which maybe I can mention, is that 
you know, again, I've always been comfortable in my role of, of, you know, being what they call the mainstream media in part because I really see my task as getting inside the policymakers' heads and trying to understand why they're making the decisions they're making mm-hmm. and what impact they have. And so one thing that, uh, you know, and I really work with folks inside the administration to tr- and for folks, for example, on the outside who are lobbying them to try to get a sense of, so you are are reversing some of these federal policies. I want to get a sense of why that's the case and how is it affecting things. And I think when one does that, you're not put in a position of taking you know, voicing any sort of opinion mm-hmm. on whether it's a good or bad thing, but mm-hmm. really trying to lay out this is the agenda that you're embarked on. Mm-hmm. What does it look like and what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but still at the same time, you're, you're, you're yeah. covering it from inside Washington, right? You're yeah. so very in a very politicized context because you're covering an administration that is run by one party. So sure. So how do you you uh, you alluded to going right. out and showing how it affects people? How does a journalist such as yourself, who's yeah. who's really in the thick of it, right. in the gears? How do you how do you bring it out to people's lives? So part of what you do is you do travel for time to time. One of the stories that I'm the happiest with, which published in January and in you know recent months, was I went out to Grand Staircase Escalante, one of the most remote areas in Utah in the lower lower 48, and and wrote about, you know, the fact that this was a sprawling national monument that was established actually by Bill Clinton in mm-hmm. 1996. President Trump cut it nearly in half in uh, at the very end of 2017. And mm-hmm. I was looking at, you know, what's happened a little just, you know, a year later and kind mm-hmm. of what's been the impact, what's happening in terms of mining and things like that. And it really was this great way to kind of try to bring uh, bring kind of what was done in a stroke of a pen to life and show to people, you know, here were the men and women who lived around this area. What did they think about it? What's happening to the habitat? Things like that. So I have a, another story coming up soon where I, I journey to West Virginia uh, to look at something that has to do with, with coal mining. And so I really think while it, it takes stuff, I have, a you know, at least one other travel plan in the near future, uh, I think it's really important to get away because that's when you can really see things and really, again, talk to people with a wide variety of perspectives. I do, again, of course, try to do that here in Washington as well, but it really helps to get out on the road. Yeah, but it's interesting. And again, uh, I I kind of uh, mourn the death of the local papers, too, because it's by definition, it has to be a case of um, Washington bringing its story to the countryside, rather than the grassroots stories percolating up from the from the environment. Right. I think that there are times, and you know, I think it's absolutely fair to give you know um, shout outs to like you know there certainly are still some pretty you know thriving papers in in some of these states, including frankly in in Utah and, and West Virginia. You have some you know dogged reporters working uh, you know on the ground. So so there's that. But I I agree that sometimes there there are places where. It's it's harder for you know you know say for example like a, a, lo- a local paper with with limited resources and so I think it's fantastic that we are willing to put the the money yeah, and time great. and in fact not not just you know I think one thing that's important and I'm really seen this in the last few years that, you know, of course, I try to tell stories as powerfully as I can with my own words. But really, we have such amazing photographers, Mm -hmm. videographers, 
graphics folks, and particularly when we have a high priority story, we try to bring all those elements to bear. And certainly I do feel like we can now offer something to folks that we frankly couldn't do when it was just the Dead Tree edition. And so that is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, I, I find it very exciting to see what the what the Post is doing in multimedia and in yeah. television, or I guess we don't call it television, <laughs> in video <laughs> in particular. Exactly. <laughs> so just quickly, because we're really yeah. running out of time, sure. what, what do you think the key stories are on your beat for the next um, year or two? I think one thing that we're trying to look at is that while folks always talk about climate change as something that happens in the future, trying to really look at what does it mean now in our lives. I think that that's really kind of a top priority for my paper and and, and for me personally, because I think that that's really important. And again, I always think our job is to kind of show what's at stake and let others decide what to do about it. And so I think that that's the way that we can provide the best journalism and the best insight into what's happening. And then beyond that, I really think that um, in some ways the first couple years of the Trump administration have been the most exciting because that's when all of these policies are being put in motion. But now really the rubber is hitting the road and what we need to do is both show what's happening in terms of impact and also try to judge to the best of our ability what may endure, whether he's reelected or whether someone else comes in. And so I think that's really something else we need to be focusing on. All right. Well, we'll be watching it, too. Thank you so much, Juliet Alprin. And uh, thank you for The Washington Post uh, for letting us use their studios. And I want to thank our producer, Danielle Alio, and listeners asking you to come and listen again to another conversation with a change-making woman from, in, or around Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.